Welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists. Also sponsored by Zapplication. I'm Will Armstrong, and I'm a mixed media artist. I'm Douglas Sigworth, glassblower. Join our conversations with professional working artists. Congratulations, artists. Oh, goody. What is it? What is it? You are invited to listen to the Independent Artist Podcast this ah, week. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> come on! I wanted something more. You know, I got invited, Douglas, uh, just now to uh, record. I got an email that Did said, you? you're invited, and I didn't see who sent it, and it was you. I know. Again, you know. I get so easily excited when I see that congratulations. I think, okay, mm. what major show have I just gotten into? And then... Congratulations. We're getting ready to jury. What? Like, that's not a congratulations. Right. You have the good fortune of applying to our show. <laughs> <sighs> they know what they're doing. They, they do. God love them. Bless their hearts. You know what they should do, Will? They should do congratulations. You've started mm. reading the art fair packet. <laughs> uh, you gave me a hard time this week. I was, you know, true to my form. Yeah. We're both getting ready to do uh, the same show. La Quinta is coming up. You know, it's it's funny, a couple of different things about that. But the, the funny part is, like, I asked you, like, five or six different questions about it. Like and, a and noob. Like, oh, so <laughs> oh, yeah, total noob. And uh, I'm like, I, I, it says we have to show up on Tuesday, but the show's not until Thursday. Is like, what happens if I show up at Wednesday? You're like, I don't know, just email her. Just do your do the thing. <laughs> but I realized I was like, first of all, you you accused me of wishing I had a packet. No, I just wanted you to read it. No, for <laughs> you and yeah. and offer to do some of the things you didn't want to do. <laughs> that's right. Tell me the four things that I need to know because that's all I need. To, what are the G, What's the GPS coordinates, Douglas? I need to know. But I realized, and this is really really weird. I have not done a new show like a show that I haven't done before. Right, like a new market. I think in six years. Yeah, that's kind of a odd feeling, isn't it? It's nuts, yeah. right? Isn't that crazy? You kind like, of feel it, like we've done them all, and if we're not doing them, it's because we don't want to do them. You know, like, oh, mm -hmm. there's a, there's one to I should try that I haven't tried before or something? Yeah, that's a whole a whole new thing. Yeah, my previous <laughs> body of work, my ex-wife and I made, uh, that, that hit a certain market and travel around to those shows, and mm -hmm. now the body of work that I'm working on now, then... I've been doing other other shows that are a little bit differently, so I, I feel like I've done every freaking show, mm -hmm. you know, everything. Except, and so it's weird to do. Except this one. <laughs> well, there's like four. You know, there's some, there's some, I mean, there's a ton of them out there, I'm sure, that I haven't done, but there's only four that I want to do. <laughs> there you go. Well, speaking of getting ready for this show, I, I mentioned on the last episode that I was building out my van. And mm, so right. I've been working on that for the last couple of weeks. How's that going? Well, it's done. And uh, there's kind of two things with it. The first thing is I'm not fully packed yet. So I'm wondering if I'm trading organization for quantity. Like, am I going to lose what I can actually bring because I'm mm -hmm. trying to, you know, organize things into compartments and make my life a little easier with unloading? So we'll find out on that one once I get to the end of this week and have to actually load it up. So you haven't loaded it up yet for it's the display, but now it's it's you know the work, and that's obviously the most important thing. Is if I can't bring the work I want to bring, then I'm going to be pissed. You know. Right. Do you ever worry about the the load, like what what the kind of van that you have, and 
how many two by fours you've just built the load in yeah. with and how heavy that stuff is. I have. I, I had to I had to shut that one off of my brain though, because there's only too many hamster wheels I can run down before I turn into <laughs> a crazy person. But I yeah, wanted to I say about the the build out. I, I thought to myself in the process, I thought there's two ways I can approach this. I can approach this build out like an artist, or I can approach mm-hmm. it like an architect. Right. You know, there there is an obvious difference. An architect gets out their grid paper. They they sketch everything out into little compartments and boxes and decide what stuff they're going to go buy, and, and they do it. They make a plan. I sat and stared at the cargo section of my van. I'm like, yeah, I think that's where I want the panels to go. And I look around my garage and see what materials I got, and I just started building, you know, just huh. yeah. <laughs> committed. Yeah, just started. Okay. <laughs> And you are you happy with it? I mean, everything seems to work out so far. So far, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Yeah, we were talking last week about uh, my example for for doing a big build out was uh, John Hecker, John and Pat Hecker. They're just a lovely couple that we we talked about last week just briefly. But yeah, John texted me this morning and was like, "Hey, thanks for the shout out. Also, I'm in the van rebuilding it out to make a double fit." <laughs> so, um, yeah, it never ends. You know, you're always you're always tweaking and, and making sure something happens. I, me personally, I've been renting the last couple of trips out. I, you know, don't want to bore you with re-bringing up the, the most tedious of all topics, the, the van breakdowns or the truck breakdowns, but mm-hmm. I just can't trust it anymore. And, and um, yeah. I've got to have a, I have to have a trustworthy vehicle. So I've been renting and that's felt pretty good to have mm-hmm. a brand new van every time. Can't be building out on a rental. <laughs> <laughs> no, you also, you know, you can't put a, a bulkhead in a rental either. So that's, mm. that's nerve wracking. So, so they don't come standard with a bulkhead divider on those? Uh-uh, nothing. Mm. Just uh, a big old, big old empty. They got, they got a uh, Apple play. I can play my, my radio. There you go. That's good. Using my fingers. Actually, that's pretty awesome. I'm, I'm a big proponent of that now. It's just, just zero contact and it'll read you your texts for you over mm-hmm. the, over the the thing and uh, you know so get a new radio well you just got back from a little trip you want to talk about that at all yeah man i did i just got back from we took a little break and went to see nick cave the musical artist not the visual artist that Mm. does all the uh intricate costumes and and things but nick cave of nick cave and the bad seeds okay so with one accompanist colin greenwood the bass player from radiohead they're taking kind of a break so Oh, um, just those those two guys and just really kind of intimate versions of his songs just done on grand piano and and um, just a really incredible night of music. But we took some time and stayed in a really nice hotel, cashed in the hotel points and took a break, saw some museums. And cool. Um, this was in L.A., kind of, right? I don't think you've said yeah, that. Yeah. Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I it's funny. I, I mean, there are parts of L.A. that that I don't like, but um, not many. I L.A. works for me. Cool. I really, really love the city and, you know, different parts of it and even kind of the seedy, shitty side of it. I kind of like to. Nice. Well, plus it fits your rock star persona there, Will. Your, your Hollywood movie star. <laughs> Maybe I, I'm going to move to L.A. be a movie star. All right. There's not enough hair on my head for that. Those days are gone, Sigworth. <laughs> uh, where are we going next? We're boring the people, the good people out there. What are we going to talk about? Boring good, the good listeners out there. So, Douglas, this is kind of interesting, and I mm-hmm. don't want to get preachy on this one at all, because um, the book is not preachy at all, but 
Uh, I've been reading this book that my wife suggested by Johan Hari. It's called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention. Some of the passages in the book, uh, I have to kind of turn off and, and sit with the book itself and take my time with it. But I have found, and you know, I'm 53, and you can blame it on that. We both the same age here. But mm-hmm. this particular book breaks down attention and focus on our work and our own uh, kind of a like our own attention deficit that we're all kind of going through. A lot of this kind of kind of rang true for me when I started reading about it, and then immediately made me feel guilty. But just talking about like what the relationship that we have with our phones does mm. to our attention span. Totally. Um, there was a little blip that we, we'd heard on a on a separate podcast where he, he was interviewing somebody else and they were talking to him about what it takes when you are interrupted and what it does to your kind of your, your, gosh, your blood pressure, your attention, your ability to focus. Like if you have your phone in your back pocket, and I don't know whether you are even able to do this, but- I'm painting, I get a text, how long it takes you to get your focus back. And mm-hmm. on average, they're saying it takes people like 26 minutes once mm-hmm. they're interrupted to mm-hmm. get their focus back. Or if you're living through this this particular kind of thing, how often you are interrupted and if you ever are able to get that deep focus back. And they focus on this kind of like, you know, the, the deep focus when you're working on something that you love and you look up and three or four hours have gone by as opposed to the 25 minutes that you feel probably have like that kind of focus and whether we even have that anymore. Mm. So uh, that's there's your um, independent artist podcast reading list for uh, for the week. If you want to check out a book called Mm. Stolen Focus, it's fascinating. It's incredibly well researched. It's also kind of terrifying. So it's talking about modern day, kind of like this, Mo- what we find ourselves in now with technology and how we've given ourselves yes. over to that. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. even with like the looking at the blue screen does and why we have insomnia at the end of the day, looking at our phones triggers uh, the same kind of light that daylight brings. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas also like there was another interesting thing that said like after you turn your light out, and why we're immediately like ping awake and mm. can't go to sleep. It's this almost like this self-imposed anxiety that we've given ourselves, but goes all the way back to caveman days. Like once the lights go out in the sky, you're supposed to get a little charge of energy so that you can prepare the camp for sleep. So that right. you need that time without the screen, without the thing. And it sounds like, God, I, I was so like, fuck you book. Right. Cause I have such a, dedication and uh, an addiction to my phone. Oh, it's it's tough, isn't it? I mean, I have uh, this watch that will tell me when stuff's going on, too. And it's crazy. You know, you'll be just hanging out with friends or with your spouse. And all of a sudden, you, they see you look at your watch and they're like, <laughs> did you get a text? What's going on? Right. You know what I mean? And it yeah, doesn't. Who it pulls, is it? Oh, yeah. It pulls focus from what you're in the moment doing right then. Right. So. Like even the shows that say they're going to announce on a certain day and then they don't announce until the very end of the day. Well, they've taken that full day. Yeah. Because it's like if you don't buy your booth, you can't get the right spot. You can't do this. And it's like it's all timed and it all matters. So it's true. I, I think it's a good point. So much of the way we handle things is so fast paced and 
worrying about missing out, you know? So it's right. it's true. I have wasted entire days waiting for a show to announce because I want a particular spot. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you spend an entire week looking forward to seeing your kids and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, now I've got to do this thing. But do we really? I don't know. Right. I, it's like your attention is split, or... right? Your attention is then right. split from what's important at that at that point. Yeah, but at the same time, it's all important, right? It's true. Yeah. Well, uh, kind of to go along with that, I don't know if this happened to you or to anyone else out there, but I'll be getting ready, you know, closing my eyes at night, just trying to de-stress from the world. Anything that went on that day can just go away, go off to slumber. And then all of a sudden my eyes go, oh, shit. When is that deadline for blah, blah, blah? You know what I mean? We're right. in this this time frame of all of these deadlines that come up on a regular basis. Yeah. And here I am last night in the dark, flipping through my phone, trying to figure out, did I remember to apply for show X? When is it is the deadline for that? And I'm like, okay, good. I have two more days. Or do I apply right now? No, you're going to sleep right now for crying out loud. Yeah, good luck with loud. that. <laughs> you know, they talk about that in that book. It's They talk about the fact that we don't let ourselves kind of daydream anymore mm. uh, because we are constantly, when yeah. there is a time that we can actually daydream or lose focus on things and let our minds wander, then we begin to remember the things that were important as part of the day. That's actually the almost like the REM, the uh, rapid eye movement part of the sleep oh, pattern. Yeah. It's similar to that, but in in waking, where you let your mind wander, and that's where you come up with your big ideas. So you have this generation of people that aren't coming up with big ideas anymore because they are so focused on the next thirty seconds of of oh my god, did, did this person email? Oh, what's that email? What's this? What's right. this? And and that's kind of what I was bringing up about. I felt over the past year kind of in a rut for ideas mm. on on artwork. And I'm yeah. like, God, and it's kind of like I've called it artist's block and leaning back into some older ideas or going back to lists and things that I've made and kind of ideating on older ideas. But as far as like coming up with new things, I've I've tried to put that thing down and start to create more. And I mean, it's it's almost like a a garden that hasn't been weeded and the ideas or the weeds coming back up through. And I'm kind of like, oh, shit, I'm starting to come up with new ideas already. Just having deleted goddamn Facebook off, off of my phone. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. We are we're sabotaging our creativity, you know? Yeah. I think of it like a pinball machine, the lights and the blinking on our phones, you know? It's a, God, it's yeah. a dopamine release, actually. That's what it is. It, it gives us a little charge. Right. And I feel like you need it for your business, but God, I hate it. I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, you know, another, and I don't want to talk about this uh, too late. I've already done it. Talk about this book for the entire preamble. But <laughs> um, yeah, another major point of this book is that that there is no such thing as multitasking. Mm. Uh, you're never really multitasking. You're never putting all of it into into one thing. It's like you're half-assing everything, right? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's like a multi-instrumentalist that can't lead on anything. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Yeah. All right. That's our that's our advice for the week, everyone. Is, uh... Yeah. And your, your IAP book club. So um, read that and get back to me. The guy that, that reads it is uh, fascinating. Cool. You know, Douglas, last week, um, God, it's been like three weeks now, honestly. But mm -hmm. um, they have this amazing event called Balloon Fiesta. And when you're at the movies and they have the, you know, they scroll the 
the images and things across the screen while mm-hmm. you're sitting there like filing in to get your seats you like you'll you'll see this huge like desert sky with with balloons in the air and that's that's balloon fiesta oh and um and, and it's in santa fe no it's in albuquerque albuquerque um, but you've done this for a few years i'm I, right have you yeah, done a couple yeah, times okay and, yeah uh, Susie knew about it and um she was like yeah we gotta you know let's do it one time let's take the kids and that's when we first moved here so they do this thing called mass ascension mm. and it happens at daylight like as the sun is coming up, they light all of these balloons across this huge field. Mm. And they light up these balloons and just as the sun is rising and like it's it's pretty breathtaking. I mean, mm. it's just incredible. And the sun is rising just as the balloons come up and the whole sky fills with balloons and, and you're standing in, in the areas where they're blowing up these balloons. They're puffing up and all rising and there's all different kinds of balloons and it's amazing. And we figured we'd take the kids one time because you have to get up at three o'clock in the morning. Right. And you'd think, okay, and, kids are going to love this early morning <laughs> right. thing, right? <laughs> yeah. They're teenagers, yeah. right? They're teenagers now. I got 13 and 15. They want to go every year now. I mean, that's how wow. cool it is. That's awesome. So uh, we're kind of like, okay. Uh, but this year I realized there's actually an art show. Really? Uh, there mm. as well. And people are filing into their space and they're getting cocoa and it's, you know, five o'clock in the morning. Mm. Well, the freaking art show is already going on. Like it's a tent full of, I don't know, small, probably like 80 oh. artists and, and stuff. And, and Is it um, all balloon themed? Is it certain themes? No. no. I mean, there of course there are, uh, you know, there are balloon themed uh-huh. stuff. They might be somebody you know there. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of walk through and you're like, I think I've seen that guy. Cool. But it has to be people that are willing to start the show. Like think about, you know, yeah. those early morning day of load in, you know, show starts at nine. You're yeah. there at five o'clock, four o'clock. These guys are there all night. They're like ready to go at five in the morning or three in the morning yeah, or whatever ready, it is. Like open. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Dang. It was just really weird. I'm like. Oh shit! I know what you do. You know, I kind of yeah. walk in. I felt like a a spy. I'm like, I know what you had to do. Yeah, <laughs> it was crazy though. Well, I have an intro. That actually reminds me of something when we first moved out this way in Hudson River Falls area. About, geez, how long has it been now? Twenty four years ago, mm. uh, we wow. were one of the only houses out here. There were, I mean, it wasn't like a neighborhood like it is now. It was like. One house here, then you go a mile and there's a house over there. And and so there's a balloon. Now that you said the name of the one in Albuquerque, that's the only name yeah. I could remember. Fiesta. But there's one locally here that they, they uh, launch in Hudson, Wisconsin. And we didn't know about it until our first winter living here. They hmm. start descending from the sky into the fields all around our house. And it was super magical. Oh, my God. That's so cool. It was so cool. Our kids were five and three, maybe. And they're yeah. running out. We're running outside, going to see the balloons and everything. And that was such a moving experience for us that we wanted to create pieces that had that sense of like inflating and, and growing. And some of the big spheres that we make are inspired from that memory, from that moment. Ah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. So that kind of yeah. took me back that you brought that up. Yeah. And if you'd been looking at your phone, you would have missed it. I would have totally missed it. 24 <laughs> years ago, who had a phone in their hand back then? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Really cool stuff. Yeah. Hey, um, 
speaking of phone in your hand, uh, I feel like you go to these concerts and, and nine times out of 10, you're surrounded by people with phones in their hands. And yeah. this week's uh, show, uh, I'm not apologizing for this in any way, but he's he's beloved by many of us uh, around the art show world. But talking to Rob Matthews has been kind of one of my goals because I really wanted to just hear some of his stories and string them together in a narrative. You yeah. Know? I've heard these stories from him. So it was kind of a, a selfish uh, act, like getting to share this episode with with all of you guys. I mean, music is such an important part of my life. And especially with the the history of it, I'm such a nerd as far as like music history. And to get to hear some of that kind of Laurel Canyon meets Haight-Ashbury uh, stuff from Rob and, and really get down into it, it just just was a was a real goal of mine with this show. Well, this is one you have to listen to all the way through because he tells stories about his interactions with Steve McQueen and and Mama Cass and Willie frickin' Nelson for crying out loud. That's right. I mean, it went, was... went for a jog with Willie. <laughs> it's like, it was insane. And, 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 you know, we come from this interesting community of artists. And then to have situations like this, it just reminds us of just how lucky we are to be amongst this community and amongst so many interesting people. So absolutely, I really enjoyed listening to what you guys talked about. It was super fun. Well, cool. Let's uh, no more burying the lead. Let's get right to it and talk to Rob Matthews coming out of Des Moines, Iowa these days, among many other places. But uh, here he is. This episode of the Independent Artist Podcast is brought to you by Zap the digital application service where artists and art festivals connect. You know, Doug, I was sitting down and talking with my wife yesterday. She had just come in from her studio and she was complaining. One of the big shows, they decided to do a do-it-yourself, reinvent the wheel application. I hate that. I hate that so much. Yeah, seriously. I mean, it's like typically an application that would take you two minutes on Zap. All of a sudden, it's going to take you an hour and a half to reformat all of your images to their specifications. It just made me think about how easy easy applying with Zap is. You just click a few buttons, you've got your 1920s already formatted, and you are good to go. Exactly. So I personally appreciate what Zap is doing, and thanks for not making us reinvent the wheel every single week like we used to have to do. We have a call to entry from the 57th Street Art Fair in Chicago, Illinois. What I have always enjoyed about those Chicago shows is that they are neighborhood shows. And 57th Street is in the Hyde Park District, which is a very affluent neighborhood. Walking distance to the Obamas. You know there's some big houses in the area. Very nice, yeah. This is happening June 1st and 2nd. It's the weekend before the Old Town Arts Festival. The hours are totally human, 11 to 6 on Saturday, Sunday from 10 to 5. That's awesome. Yeah, yep. I love those kind of early spring kind of hours that don't drag on into the night. And you know what? It's an originals-only show, and it's the oldest juried art fair in the Midwest. And if you are like me, uh, music uh, speaks directly to your soul. The music lineup is presented by Chicago's premier blues club, Buddy Guys Legends. So you know the music is going to be good. The entertainment is going to bring folks out. Lots of great reasons to apply to this show. Jump on your Zap profile, save 57th Street Art Fair to your favorites, and don't miss the deadline to apply on January 15th. You know what? I never, ever drink this time of day. Yeah. And I'm drinking an elaborate metaphor. <laughs> Perfect. That's the name of the beer. How are you, man? Yeah, it's good to better. see you. Yeah. I'm good. We just got back from a uh, 
pretty epic road trip. We only drove 12,000 miles this year for shows, so we felt that wasn't enough. So we <laughs> threw all the work out of the Sprinter yeah, and put another 5,200 miles on. Good God. And how long? Just over four weeks. Okay. It was all fun. Desert Southwest mostly. That's amazing. Delivered a piece to L.A. We just got back from L.A. Uh, we took a little vacation, a little five-day kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts on L.A.? Do you like or you don't like? On L.A.? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm pretty much a Californian. Right. But Northern Californian. If I could live in a particular neighborhood in L.A., which would either be the Arts District right. or Santa Barbara or Ventura. Yeah. Santa Monica, not Santa Barbara. Sure, Manhattan um, Beach, maybe, and not have give to you a little, right. give you a little surf shack, and not ha not ever have to leave, and not even own a car. I, I would love it. Yeah, there was a restaurant we wanted to hit. We were staying out in Santa Barbara, and uh, there was a restaurant in town that we wanted to hit, and it was like you know, I had reservations I'd had for a long time. Uh, Girl and the Goat was, was the spot. I'm like, well. Uh, reservations are at 6.30. It's 4.30 now, and it says that it's a three-hour drive. <laughs> oh, no. So we're like, uh, how about we just eat around here um, instead? Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. Which, I, I don't know. I, I, I fucking love it. I love L.A. It just it kind of makes sense to me. So, But I lived in San Diego for a pretty long time, and basically when you leave San Diego, you have to drive through L.A. to get out, you know? Right. And there were times, this was in the 80s, and it would take me four hours to cross L.A. in the yeah. 80s. All right. Um, I'm going to set this show up because every time I have talked to you, Rob, I feel like I've gotten a different slice of of history that I care about from this country, whether it's some kind of musical history or some kind of story that you were there or some kind of, oh, well, I uh, yeah, I was a teenager and, and selling weed to Steve McQueen out in the desert. I just kind of wanted to get some of these stories down on tape and kind of put some of them together to see if they made sense in any kind of narrative form. So I, I kind of want to start from the beginning and and get into some of these stories by just asking you where you grew up. Like you say, you're a California boy. What? Where'd you grow up? I didn't. I was a total gypsy kid. Yeah. L uh, literally. I I only say California because I live there longer than I've the lived longest, anywhere else. Yeah. But I'm a deeper Southerner than all y'all that think. No shit. South. I was born in Savannah. Okay. Lived in Savannah till I was eight. What year are we I, talking about? I'm sorry to put an age on you, but we just just trying oh to get no, a timeline. Uh, that's that's inevitable. Fifty three. So I'm just a minutes from turning seventy. Yeah, I turned seventy in like two weeks. Yeah, well, you keep it looking young. It's weird, you know, it's, it's weird. Uh... yeah, right, right. <laughs> True oh, love God. will do that to you. We're gonna talk about that too. Uh, I owe you a case of uh, pumpkin IPA. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite pumpkin's not food, Rob. It's not. No, it's it is a food. So I've never had one. No. Anyway, so you're born in uh, you're born in Savannah. Tell me about this gypsy thing. Like, what are you talking about? Well, what, are you, what were your folks like? Blame my father. He was a uh, he worked for an international engineering corporation. Okay, so he got jerked around a lot. From Savannah, we went to Reno, and uh, wow. before I graduated high school, I had lived in Reno on and off three different times. Okay, so 
it at least made sense to you. Into my thir- into, into my thirties, I told people I was from Nevada because it's when people still to this day they say, "Well, where are you from?" Like you just did. Yep. I don't really have an answer. Yeah. How much How much time do you have? <laughs> we, so we can stretch it into two episodes thing. if we need to. We'll do what we got to no, do. No, we don't want to do that. Yeah. Oh. Uh, one will be agonizing enough. Everybody that I've talked to and told that I was going to interview you has either been jealous or or, or given me a, ah, I love that guy. I mean, <laughs> you're a beloved member of this community. and It's been a long time uh, coming. You've said no to me in the past as far as coming I, on the show. I have. I have. In fact, Bonnie Harmston says it best. She says it's impossible for you to have done all the things you say you've done. That's what I'm, that's why I, I, you're sitting here, you know, that's why, that's why I've got you on the show. And I've never written it down. Yeah. So, uh, Nevada, but we left, kept leaving. So Nevada, you know, no love for Nevada. That's not. Oh yeah. A um, lot. Oh, do you? Good. It's, it's in my heart. Oh, wait, on and off, probably 13 years there. Hmm. But my dad's job, I mean, we would move somewhere and he would be on a big job. Like he mostly built power plants, dams, big industrial things. So he would move there and he was, he was the lead accountant and he was told this job will last four years. We never lived anywhere for four years. He always got pulled off the job because he's in demand. He was in demand, I guess, to put out fires somewhere else. So the second time we were living in Reno, I was in seventh grade, and it looked like I was going to be there at least through ninth grade. Okay. Literally overnight, the next thing we knew, we were in Boston, which is where his corporate headquarters were. Yeah. So we lived in a hotel in Boston for the middle part of seventh grade. These are not easy times. I mean, this is like prime... Make no. friend and settle in time for for seventh through ninth graders. That's when kids are beating you up because you're <laughs> <a kid. laughs> back in the good old that days of ha- bullying. That never happened. I was pretty good at backing away. Yeah, but then we moved again in seventh grade. So I was in three seventh grades. Wow. That was the worst. So we moved from Boston to Cape Cod, and I spent all of eighth grade on Cape Cod in a K through twelve school. Which was probably one of the favorite places I ever lived. So you you able you were able to, to kind of put ties down for a few years there or no? No. Okay. Year and a half, not year even a half. year and a half. Jeez. And then my dad moved to Peru. So Did you go in with nineteen sixty seven? I did for the summer. And he lived in a very remote part of the country. There was nothing closely close to school for me to go to. Yeah. So I came back to the states, and well, are Ma and Pa together at that point? Are they still? Yeah. Oh, they always. Stayed? Yeah, Great. they were. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my mom was there, but very hard on them. No idea of what the culture was going to be like. My mother had a really hard time with yeah, the poverty. Well, me too. You know, here I I'm this twelve year old cheeseburger milkshake kid and all of a sudden i'm living on canned milk and cornflakes and weird food but uh beans and rice so she had a hard time with the poverty that was there or with your own she had a hard time with the poverty and never tried to educate herself 
uh, like the money was a huge struggle. We'd go to the market and she would just hand somebody a fistful of money and oh, man. say, take what it is. But it was definitely an experience for me. Um, I had, I basically lived in the mate's quarters of this house we had, and I had the, an AM radio, and I got this Chicago radio station. I no mean, it kidding. was during this, it was 67, it was during the summer of love. Yeah. But I was, I was 13, and, uh, but at night, pulled in this Chicago radio station. Wow. Which was amazing. And that's the soundtrack for summer of love. Is that, is that, is that what you're listening to? It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew just as much about contemporary music as anybody in the States, because that's all I had was right. my radio. It's your lifeline. So it was. But uh, but also, oh, what I'm missing. <laughs> but at least I had it. <laughs> right. I didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't come, I didn't come back to the States and say, oh, my God. Because, it, I mean, things happened really quickly back then. Musically, was, right? Well, that's what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, well, musically, politically, you know, yeah. Vietnam was raging, and so, uh, so then I went. I lived in College Station, Texas, for ninth grade. Wow! Again, because of your dad, he's he's taking you to College Station. No, my sister lived there. My dad stayed in Peru. So my sister, I have a much older sister, and her husband was going to school there, getting a master's. So I lived with them, and that was the worst place I ever really so, how come rednecky yeah i was already turning into a hippie my hair was like beatles haircut yeah kind of those redneck texas boys didn't like it my best friend had moved there the same week as me and he was from chicago okay and we're pretty much we were inseparable and we were the outsiders but nobody bothered us it was all right and then i went back to peru and i stayed there for eight months eight months so, okay yeah and this is kind of so, yeah, just just to put a timeline on that, you're you're headed back to Peru around what is this like tenth, eleventh grade? Yeah, after I got out of ninth grade, was there for eight months, and then back to Reno. Okay. So my dad's job was wrapping down, and he knew he was going to go to Reno. Back to Reno for the third time after that. Uh, my mom and I went ahead of him by a few months, and I had missed four months of school. Yeah already to try and get into 10th grade and we actually ended up in the principal's office and he said i'll make you a deal he says i'll give you two weeks to catch up and if you can't you have to wait start over and i, wow. I managed to do it that's incredible and he said that to you not just to your mom he said that to me and my, and my mom yeah that's amazing my there were a couple of behind the scenes things happening with me in school where the t the principal no one of my teachers said something to my mom that she chose not to share with me that was kind of like uh, if he doesn't get it together this year then they, you know she was like eh, okay we're not going to put that stress on him I was protected but right. <laughs> yeah so we're talking let's see sixty seven now we're coming along like six sixty nine seventy yeah that's where you're back in Reno and I again? have friends. I yeah. have friends, yeah, friends from grade school. Yeah, I knew some people, which was great, and mm -hmm. I loved it there. So I and I actually, and back then, and at 15 and a half, you could get a permit. Hmm. So I, I had a car. You just couldn't drive at night. But also a little side note about that. 
is there were no speed limits <laughs> in Nevada outside of towns. So you could you could be two miles outside of Reno and drive as fast as you want. Wow. So that's how I learned to drive. Yeah. So then when I turned 16, no restrictions. So I had a car. I'm 16 years old. And San Francisco's four hours away. Yeah, it's nothing. With the insane music scene happening over there. Right. So I'm like, Mom, Mom, we're going camping. <laughs> and you <laughs> just go and... We're yeah. going up to Tahoe to go camp for the weekend. <laughs> what would you she know? have said? Would she she wasn't down with the music or or what you were doing? What was your mom like? I'm not sure about that. That's a good question, but I never tested that. Isn't that funny? Some kids are just they share everything, uh-huh. and then the other ones are like, "Well, I'm going to assume that you're going to, I guess, be against this." So I guess I'm admitting to lying to my mother, my hey, parents. That's okay. On air, <laughs> this is know? a safe place. Right. She she knew. She yeah. Knew. She knew. I, so. I told her everything later. Yeah. And most of the time, it was like your t- stereotypical mother's response is like, oh, I knew. Honey, <laughs> I knew. So what does that look like for you? You're headed off to San Francisco for the weekend. Um, who are you going to see? What are you oh, getting into? Maybe the first trip out there. What's what's the first trip out there look like? Fillmore West yeah. to see traffic. Yeah. Fillmore so, West to see traffic. You're, see how traffic. do you get tickets? That how are you getting your money? the first one. Oh, you could just, you could buy them at the door or you could buy them at the store in Reno. Mm. I always had a job. I mean, that's how I bought my car at 15 and a half. I had, I had a job. Yeah. So my first, my first car was a 56 Chevy and wow. I paid $80 for it. <laughs> oh my God. It, it ran bucks. okay. And it, it was only six years old. Yeah. You know, not That's even. Incredible. It was five years old. It, I don't remember exactly. It probably had like 8,000 miles on it. Awesome. So I know. I wish I still had it. So you're headed into San Francisco. It's, it's you know, leftover summer love, really. Yeah. Oh, way. Most of those people had moved up to the mountains where I ended up living later yeah. in life, surrounded by them, the ones that stayed. The biggest deal was lodging, but what we did many, many times is, I don't know if you're familiar with San Francisco, but Ocean Beach, right? If you drive all the way through Golden Gate Park, yeah. you get to the ocean, and Ocean Beach is there, and there's a massive parking lot, and you could just park there overnight and sleep in your car, and that's what we always did. So. That's awesome. And nobody'd hassle you? No, not at all. Yeah. Uh-uh. Describe that scene, what's going on at, at the time, like what's what's happening? there and, and like just in give the up. city yeah we were we were cowboy kids from the desert you know <laughs> we weren't sophisticated city ice we were still bug-eyed yeah. and bewildered by it all and the Fillmore, i mean that part of san francisco has always been pretty seedy i think my most vivid memory is i had lo- i was with two pals and we got separated in the venue and I'm sitting on the floor between bands, and I don't remember the first, the opening band, but it was somebody pretty big. And I've tried to go online and find out who it was. And yeah, doesn't show up. But sitting there, and my hair wasn't long, it's like yours probably <laughs> now, yeah. or mine now. And every all the guys' long hair and all these cute hippie chicks, and offering me a joint. And I was like, mm, no. 
<laughs> not yet. Not yet. Uh, not yet. So, but that changed really quickly. Sure. I don't know who was after that. There was this band called Aum, A-U-M. Okay. And they used to come to Reno a lot. And another play with another band called The Loading Zone. Mm-hmm. And obscure little Bay Area bands, and we just love them. My two buddies and I had the same musical taste. And one one time we went down, they were playing together, and we said, "Oh, we have to go to this." And that time we took our friend's car and we went down and saw the show and turned around and came back home. <laughs> same night, uh, we kind of snuck out. Yeah, yeah, showing back up in the morning. And- yeah, the music scene in Reno was. Awesome. Was it really? You no. Know, because was, San Francisco was pretty close. Yeah. A lot of bands. Saw a lot of bands. I saw Jerry Jeff probably before you were born. Mm. So <laughs> but but he he would play there a lot. In nineteen seventy six I saw Willie fifteen times. Wow. Because there was a big casino there called Harris, which is now all over the place, but it was yeah. a mom and pop. It was owned by Bill Hara. And I had a big showroom, and there was a Harris at Tahoe. And Willie would play three or four times a year for a week at each place. Wow. So it was really easy to go see him. I ran with him a couple times. There's this place in Reno called Virginia Lake that I used to run around. I was a runner. And uh, somebody said, I, I ran. Oh, I'm sorry. You were, you were, sorry. I thought you were like, yeah, yeah, I got you. I got you. Yeah. And somebody told me, hey, when Willie's in town, he runs around Virginia Lake early in the morning all the time. So I went down there one time and no Willie, no (laughs) Willie. Oh, my God, it's Willie. So I just pulled up next to him and we did like three laps. It's great. That's incredible. You get to talk to him at all? How old? So that was, yeah, we we talked. Talk the whole time. Talk. He was super yeah. sweet guy. So this is around seventy six. He's ninety so now. So, so now I'm jumping. Yeah, that was seventy six. So I, I left Reno, moved to New York for my senior year. So I went from Reno to Long Island. Wow, an hour from New York. Yeah, and, and that's because of your dad again. Was he back at that yeah, point? Exactly. Yeah. He, oh yeah, he was back. He came back to Reno and then left Reno and and my parents were both from Long Island and. They said, oh, we can send you home. So he jumped on that one. He had a big job there. But so, yeah, I used to go into the New York, into catch the New York scene. You'll love, you'll love this. So I went to Fillmore East four times. Okay. And we would take the train into the city and that would go to Grand Central Station. And then you'd have to get on the subway and take it down to the village where Fillmore East was. And then, you got off the subway and you had to walk like four or five blocks through the village, which was super, super oh, dark. Yeah. yeah, that's really nasty at the time, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm like 16, 17 by then. I'm yeah. almost an adult. You know? <laughs> and, you're, and, uh, and you're pretty so, too, right? You're just... <laughs> so we, oh, my God. And it's nighttime, you know, and the streets are dark and they're not lit. So there was this one street where we had to walk down the street and there was a club on the street and we were just, we were hippie kids. And that scene at that club was so weird. We always made sure to walk across the street from that club. And 
you'll fall out of your chair when I'll tell you what the club was. Yeah, lay it, it was, on me. It was it was CBGB. I was gonna ask. Uh, I bet. <laughs> so you got? Did you so, guys ever go so in there? My or? whole my whole life, I'm like, oh my god, I was going <laughs> to the wrong place. Right. So. So I could have gone in there and seen Lou Reed and Velvet Underground. Yeah, Patty Smith. That's yeah. what was going. Right. Yeah. Ramones yeah. and Talking Heads, too, at that era, right? It was. Can you imagine? I, I, I although, can, unfortunately. <laughs> two out of the four times I went to the Fillmore East was to see the Allman Brothers wow. with Dwayne. Yeah. So I wouldn't give that away for no. anything. No. But I mean, well, also, that's your scene, too. You probably didn't. Yeah. You know, yeah. you didn't get into... Maybe that stuff until later on. Who knows? Much later. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was pretty wild. Yeah. Debbie Harry, you just walked. Yeah. Get out of my way. <laughs> I'm going to see right, the yeah, Almonds. Right. Excuse, excuse me, miss. <laughs> <laughs> but Patty Smith. But you got to be there for that that particular year. You were there for just a year in, in Manhattan. No, so I you... stayed for quite a while. Six six years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, this is post. Uh, when I. I, so I graduated from high school in New York. Yeah. Um, worked all summer. Didn't like the East Coast. So I was a West Coast guy, right. you know. And moved when I was 17. I moved back to California. And I ran out of money really quickly. And because I was 17, nobody would hire me. Yeah. So I ended up going back to New York. I was only gone for maybe four months. And went back to New York with my tail between my legs and stayed for almost four years. That's okay. I didn't go to college. I got a job in construction making a bunch of money. I was in a union and I was on a concrete crew. Yeah. that's a, Is that how you, you first got into concrete? So, no, actually, when I was a senior in high school, I worked at a little joint about two blocks from my house that made yard ornaments out of concrete concrete so yeah concrete yeah the owner was this amazing man he was almost blind and he was such an artisan and my best friend and i worked there and it was just him and not the two of us and we were just mesmerized by the things he could make that's awesome. being almost blind he had literal coke bottle glasses yeah so probably because that stuff is is maybe more tactile than than other artwork yeah it could be yeah, who knows? Sir. Yeah. But he was he was great. He was definitely a mentor, but having nothing to do with where I am with concrete today. Yeah. Either one of those jobs, I don't think. So other than maybe, you know, get a, having an affinity for it, the, learning how to control it. Yeah, and getting your hands in it and it's still today has a mind of its own as far as control goes. But Right. So when I first became aware of you kind of your your history and your stories and kind of these these Forrest Gump moments of, of being there for uh, music and the dead and taping and uh, San Francisco and all of the different things you've taped. When are you in, I, was it like Baja that you were talking about them filming out in the desert and Steve McQueen? No, and, that was in El, that was El Paso. Okay. Uh, the summer after I graduated from high school on Long Island, my whole family moved to El Paso for about five months. Okay. And I didn't want to go. I had it all set up. I was going to move in with my best friend's girlfriend and <laughs> and wait for my parents to come back because they knew it was temporary and they would be coming back. And I was only 17 and my parents said, 
yeah, no way you're coming with us. So <laughs> You'd already hated Texas at that point. I mean, Texas had been I, your low I, point. Yeah, so from college station to El Paso, yeah. it's like, oh, why not man. Austin? Why not, please? Can we just move to Austin? Do you know Kinky Friedman's asshole from El Paso? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So there was, I found out later, and, and even when I lived in college station, the 13th floor elevators, a couple of those guys lived in my neighborhood. Wow. Which I found out much later. You found out that they were in the band or you did you did you they, have any run-ins with them? Well, or no? I saw the posters and I never saw them, okay. but I knew they were they were already an entity there. No band is cooler than the 13th floor elevators. Oh, no, it's so true. Yeah. No. God. Can you imagine going to see them being on the rail in ninth grade? <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Become, yeah, exactly. Yeah, get down on the floor. I'll eat you alive. I, I have to say the five months I lived in El Paso were the most motion-packed times I ever had. So the thing was Steve McQueen, and no, I never sold him pot. Okay. But, I, I just, uh, you know, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. No, I know. There was there was a place called the Levee, and not far from my house, and it was just open field, and you could ride your bike or ride your motorcycle or walk into Mexico across the Rio Grande. There were no fences. There was no border patrol. There was nothing. Yeah. But I had a little dirt bike. Actually, it was a friend's, but he kept it at my house, so I rode it as I wanted. But I was out there on my bicycle one time, and here comes a motorbike, and this guy pulls up next to me, and... He said, are we in Mexico? And I look at him, and of course, I was a Steve McQueen freak. Who wasn't, <laughs> yeah. you know? And uh, I was, so I was 17. So I told him where some great places to ride were, and we're chatting. And, he's, and he says, well, I'm here doing a movie. And I said, yeah, I know, I know. And he said, well, come down to the set, and I'll get you on the set. And he told me a guy to ask for. He was married to that amazing european woman and he was so it was the getaway sorry okay the getaway yeah with with ali mcgraw ali mcgraw and he was obviously cheating on his wife with ali mcgraw and i had a crush on his wife too and i couldn't stand <laughs> ali mcgraw and nobody liked her except really? for him except for it him. was really interesting but that was a sam peckinpah movie yeah and sam peckinpah was strange dude did you get to meet him? Uh, no, I wouldn't go anywhere near him. Really? But they they carried what's the Egyptian chair? He had four bears. Oh he had my a gosh. ferry set on with sticks and four guys would pick yeah. him up and move him around the set. It was so weird. That's but I so but I went down there every day and hung out almost every day. Wow. But I had a VW bus with New York license plates <laughs> and I had a ponytail. And I had been working in a truck stop, unloading trucks, making a lot of money. And I would take truck drivers to Juarez at night to all the hot clubs. Wow. I'm still 17. Yeah, which it doesn't make any difference in Mexico. <laughs> no, not a bit. But coming across the border, you know. <laughs> so I knew all these great clubs 
and there was this one underground place, and that's what it was, it was called the caves. And it was this underground bar, and it was, I think it's still there. It made to look like you're in a big cave, uh-huh. stalactites and stalagmites. Wow. So I took some people from the film crew there, and that became the entire film crew's hangout for the rest of the movie. <laughs> but but uh, I didn't, McQueen would like throw me a nod or a smile. And I charged people to take them there, <laughs> and everybody was everybody was happy. I was like a cab, right? You know, I could get like I could get like six people in my VW bus. I had two bench bench seats. You go back and forth. You just do one load per per night and party with them. Uh, it it depended. Sometimes I'd go and stay, and I was everybody. Of course, always wanted to buy me drinks. Yeah, and I was. I don't actually remember ever drinking. I was pretty good about that. Yeah, but yeah. I'd wait, but it was really easy to go back and forth. They could get back on their own. Okay. But, yeah, once but, they're there. Uh, but nobody minded paying me. I was probably more expensive than a cab, I'm sure. <laughs> so these two guys were hitchhiking, and I pull over, and they're like in downtown El Paso. Yeah. And they said, what are the, a little bit older than me, and they're like, what are the odds of a long-haired kid in a VW bus picking us up? And they were from New York. Oh my god! And they were musicians, and and they were passing through, and their van broke down, and they'd been living in Las Cruces right up the road. Yeah. So I ended up hauling them around to local gigs, and they were called American Rescue. And wow, both, they were they were brothers. There was a lead player and the. Um, rhythm guitar player and then they had a keyboard and a drummer and a bass player and they were awesome and they had played with the almond brothers they wow. had opened for the almond brothers and yeah. these seedy little shows and i'm like oh dude i just <laughs> saw them you know and i did some little like i knew eventually what chord got plugged into what amp and whatnot simple basic stuff sure. and they they opened for seals and crofts wow at the university in Las Cruces. And so Seals and Crofts hires me to go on a little mini Southwest tour. Shut up. Just a like a roadie? Yeah, yeah. and hauling their stuff. Because <laughs> they had all their stuff crammed in a van with no room. And they said, you've got this big blank van. We'll pay you. And so I went on a little Southwest mini tour. Truth or Consequences, Albuquerque and Las Cruces. Yeah. And and so they and the band were in one van, and all their equipment was in my van. And they were so sweet; they were just <laughs> that's nicest, amazing, nicest, nicest guys. Yeah. So I became a legit roadie. A legit roadie. You know? Did you use that to parlay yourself into other? I did. I bet I did. Yeah. It got me gigs. So <laughs> I end up back in Reno, and just met some random guy and told him that story. And he said, you know, you can sign up. There's a list when bands come to town and they're looking for worker bees. Mm. And if you have any cred whatsoever, you can get a job. So I worked for Alice Cooper, <laughs> wow. who was awesome. I bet. What a gentleman. You know, I've In the heard like, that. peak of his career. Yeah. In the peak of, like, he was biting... He was doing the uh, Aussie thing, you know, it was right. crazy. He didn't really bite the heads off bats, but he was pretending. Sure. But he was just the consummate gentleman. He was so great, 
and kind and sincere backstage. That's amazing. Uh, Starship. Wow. Which was crazy. Was it? It's when they were, yeah, it was crazy. Because I had a crush on Grace Slick forever. I bet. And there she is. And they were all so lit. I'm sure they were heavy into junk then. None of them could talk. But they could perform. They could perform. Or maybe sometimes. I don't know. No, it was was like Craig Craig Chiquito. Is that what his name was? I don't know. Oh, oh, guitar player. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Flashy Pants. That era. Right. That era. Yeah. And did you tour with these guys, or did you just work like one? No, club? just yeah. No, load in and load out yeah. stuff. But a bunch of people. I did a, a sleep at the wheel. Nice. Ray Benson yeah. was another. I just kept getting hooked up with all these really great people. Ray I, Benson was same thing, man. God, gentle giant. He I ran so into him sweet. in Mexico on the elevator. <laughs> I was like, oh, he was getting on as I was getting off, and I. I I had uh, seen him before and I'd met him, but no, no nothing that would stick with with uh, Ray Benson, you know. But he's getting on, and I I felt kind of like there's very few seven foot tall cowboy guys carrying mandolins that aren't Ray Benson, and, you know. So I was Mark, like, he's getting uh, yeah, on. I'm like, long hair. Yeah, I was like Ray, and he's like, yeah. Do I know you? <laughs> I was like, uh, no, no, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just blown away seeing you here, and he's like, yeah. I'm playing here tonight on the beach if you want to come out and see. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So Sleep at the Wheel, I mean, just incredible, uh, just spacey, Texas Swing, uh, Bob Wills. Yeah, just swing. Try and keep up. Oh, my God. Just Try and dance that fast. (laughs) Right. Yeah, they played Reno Reno like a couple times a year. Awesome. So All casino stuff? Uh, No. Okay. No. Sometimes, but you no, know, Reno had some great clubs, nice. especially like Americana stuff. Yeah. Hoyt Axton. You could mm. go see Hoyt Axton almost any night of the year, almost. He had a place at Tahoe. Um, but Harris, getting back to Harris Casino, so they had a showroom. And that's where Willie and all the big names would play. And um, then they had a little club. So. Delbert McClinton. Oh yeah, I'm say I'm saying these because I know there are people who like Delbert McClinton would play three four times a year. Yeah, and when they would come, they'd they'd stay for a week, so you could get off work and go see these people every night if you liked them a lot. But I just ton of people there. Yeah, um, he's kind of musical family, you know, like uh, Bonnie Raitt and. Um, some of Little Feet, too, kind of on the peripheral of those guys. And Delbert was a big East Coast guy, too, and he would play around D.C. all the time. I think yeah. he was headquartered in D.C. when I was coming up. And, and um, so, we, you know, again, that would be the type of thing that we could we could go see Delbert. He um, got busted for it – was, it was a very Blues Brothers kind of situation where the cops were waiting for him to finish, and he just kept playing. <laughs> and they were, he was and like – he knew he was – yeah, he knew he was he in trouble. It. And so we're like, man, he was just supposed to play for an hour. He played for two and a half. <laughs> the cops just kind of wait for him like, all right, wise ass. Uh, all right, it's, yeah, exactly. finish it up. Didn't you already play this song? <laughs> right. Yeah. Sandy Beaches again? <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, right. I love him. Yeah. Always have. Yeah, definitely. Well, he's still still alive, but he retired from music last year after. Didn't want to 
I guess it was last year, a year and a half ago. Didn't want to kind of get cranked back up again after COVID. Was just kind of figured that was a, that was a good time to call it call it quits. Yeah, as a lot of people said. Yeah. Right. Yeah, a right. lot of folks. A lot of folks. So, um, okay, um, where are we here? So yeah, we're like tangents all over the place. Good. Yeah. So, but so I have to tell you one. You keep saying all these rock and roll stories, yeah. and I keep thinking I don't realize I don't really have any, but. I, my favorite yeah of all time today is the 50th anniversary of which is i know yeah kind of bonkers yeah tell and me. i didn't realize that till this morning so living on long island working in construction and my best friend was stage manager at hofstra university and he gives me a birthday present which is an all-access pass to see Zappa and the Mothers what? at Hofstra today wow. in 1973. That's insane. Zappa's first album came out when I lived in College Station in ninth grade, and my buddy, the Chicago kid, bought it the day it came out, and I was like, hmm. I know it's not really for me, but a year <laughs> later I was just totally in love with the mothers yeah so i was a huge mothers fan and zappa fan so hofstra i mean it was a ways from thanksgiving but they did this massive thanksgiving meal for the band and the whole stage crew and everything and it was like four or five banquet tables all lined up in a row with candelabras and mm. crystal and nice plates and there was probably 25 people at this table wow so Zappa comes up to me. I've got my little badge on. Zappa comes up to me and says, it's your birthday. And I said, uh, pretty close. And he says, sit next to Ruth. So Ruth Underwood, I don't, you probably don't know, but in that era, Ruth Underwood was for sure in the top five women of rock and roll. Yeah. And she was married to Ian Underwood, who had, been in the mothers from day one so i'm like dumbfounded <laughs> she was just beautiful and gifted and funny and smart so i'm sitting next to her and about eight people away on the other side of the table is her husband ian who looked like a biker that just got out of 11 yeah he's, he's a rough looking glaring dude. at me the whole time yeah you know <laughs> but earlier I had talked to Jimmy Carl Black and found out we were neighbors in El Paso because I knew by then he lived in El Paso. Yeah. And I said, man, I lived in El Paso. And he's like, yeah, I was there then, you know. And so we had a nice little conversation earlier that afternoon. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, we hit it off. So Jimmy Carl Black looks over at Ian and he's like, you're not worried about that kid, are you? Because he just kept glaring at me, you know? <laughs> I was, I, so I was tw I was about to turn 20. Wow. Look out, Ian. I'm going to run away with Ian. your wife, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you hit it off with Ruth? So that that's my favorite rock and roll story. That's that's incredible. And you can find that show. That show's really easy to find. Oh, can you really? Yeah, that's just, what I do love about that, that stuff. I mean, you can go back and, and check out set lists and... Um, you know, and, and, and 
figure out, oh, well, this happened. I remember this show. And then you can go back and people have kept pretty amazing records of it. So you had also been, you're in San Francisco at the time. You told me this one story about going to see the first gig of a little rock and roll band coming out of England uh, called Dire Straits. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, a good one. Yeah. Tell me that story. My friend worked in a record store in Reno and it was on totally on top of music. And he said, we're going to the city this weekend. I got tickets to this band. I'm like, never heard of them. And I I was busy. I didn't really want to go. It was, would have been a hindrance for me to go. And he's like, no, you really have to come see this band. Do what, do whatever it takes. Yeah. We have to go. So it was this little tiny club that sat about 300 people called the Old Waldorf. And it was practically in the basement of the Transamerica Pyramid building, which was the skyscraper in San Francisco right. at the time. Uh, and there was an early show and a late show. And if you had tickets to the late show and the early show wasn't sold out, you could go in either for the early show or during the early show. Anyway, you mentioned tapers earlier. So, yeah, yeah I hung out with a group of tapers. So it was folding tables. The place was a semicircle and all the tables came off the stage in a spoke fashion. Okay. And so it was uncomfortable. You sat in uncomfortable folding metal chairs and you had to turn your head to look at the band. Right. So it's packed and it's bustling. There's just this energy in the air and there were music execs there. Mm. And we're dead center, four seats from the stage. And there's like four of us. And we have our taping gear, and then there's a sweater in the middle of the table with the microphones in it, hidden in the sweater. Yeah. And then one guy's got this D5 in his lap, and it's like five minutes till showtime. And six or seven seats right across the table from us are empty. They're like prime seats. Huh. I'm like, well, that's going to be weird if they show up in the middle of the show or something. So here they come, and it was Garcia. Oh, my God. And so Garcia sits, like, <laughs> right across from my best buddy. <laughs> what? And he's right there. And Rock Scully, who was the manager of the Grateful yeah. Dead at the time, sits right across from me. Garcia definitely knew my best friend. They're recognizable from being on the rail at Dead Shows yeah. forever. And so the lights go down, and the band comes out, and Rock Scully leans over into the sweater, and he says, start all tapes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I still have the tape. It's on Do you tape. really? So, yeah, sure, of course. That's incredible. So that was that was pretty fun. Yeah, so you were a taper. You were, you were part of that whole scene. I, was that I started out I started out as a taper, and I'm like, I had like four of my best friends were tapers and it's, I didn't like it because you missed the show. Oh yeah. You're of so, course. you're so focused. I mean, like what you're doing right now, you know, you're constantly checking your levels and you're making sure everything's okay. And it was just too distracting. You couldn't really go and enjoy the show. You couldn't just course, set it up and leave it. You were the, you were the hero. <laughs> no, you really couldn't set it up and leave it. Huh. Constantly having to monitor, but. But I so I was happy to settle for second generation tapes. Yeah. Sure. Oh my god, I have boxes and boxes and boxes. Man, the tapes. history of that that that's incredible. Do you ever try to digitize those or or are they? Yeah, yeah. 
I did. I've I've put and all those guys. I still let them do all the grinding. Work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come over sometime, and I'll let you go through my CDs. Yeah, all got burned from master tapes. I would love that. I, I need have. to hear that Dire Straits. Oh, show. you'd flip. Yeah, I bet. I'll 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 find it. I'll get it to yeah, you. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. I'm a so huge huge Knopfler guy. Yeah, yeah. I've got a ton. Wow. Huh. So another great story of that realm is not very long ago, like 10, 12 years ago, one of the out-of-my-loop tapers, I see him at a show, and he comes up to me and he says, hey, don't you like Buddy Miller? And I yeah. said, yeah, I love love Buddy Miller. Love him. Yeah, incredible. He says, do you know he was a taper at Fillmore East? And I'm Shut like, up. What? What? <laughs> No, that's just what I said. Shut up. And he says, no, he snuck a real door. Oh, I should, this maybe shouldn't be on air. <laughs> that's okay. So, so I know. He says, yeah, his, he had a good buddy who ran the soundboard at Fillmore East, and Buddy would bring a real to He lived across the river oh in New God. Jersey and would bring a real to real into the Fillmore <laughs> almost every night. And because he never had to pay for a ticket, and he plugged into the board. So he has basically a full epic catalog of anybody that played at Fillmore East, at That's least incredible. for a certain period. And I'm like, get out. <laughs> so Yeah, and for folks that don't know, Buddy Buddy Miller and his wife Julie Miller played in Spy Boy, uh Emmy Lou Harris's um kind of my favorite era of, of Emmy Lou's band. Definitely. Um so and then have some incredible albums uh, kind of in the same family. They have a radio, Buddy Miller has a radio show with Jim Lauderdale, another musician, kind of borderline family with the Grateful Dead as well, even though he's a country guy, more of them. But uh, Robert Hunter what? has a record of, of, of Robert Hunter songs. And anyway, just if you want to nerd out on some music that, that Rob and I are, are getting down into. Well, when people, when I talk to people and they've, they're not, Emmy Lou fans or they've no idea who Buddy Miller is. So I say, Well he was in Robert Plant's band for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah. Just so, little little and guy. Then like, oh, really? <laughs> All right. So Leslie and I go see Emmy Lou when we we're living in California about ten years ago, after I heard that story. So we go see Emmy Lou at this outdoor theater in Reno, a little quiet, small venue. And Buddy opens for her, and then he played with her. So afterwards, he's signing CDs. So I get in line, and I'm almost the last person in line after the after the gig. And he's sitting there signing CDs. And I get up to him and I said, "I already have your CD, and I didn't I didn't bring it with me." I said, "I want to talk to you." So backtracking, I always sat in the first or second row of Phil Maurice wow. in the balcony yeah, because you literally looked right down on the stage mm. and they were just killer seats. And I don't have to tell you how I bought my tickets, but I went to a department store and I could sort of pick. Oh, wow. And out there in the burbs of Long Island, you got tickets before the people that lived in New York did. That's awesome. So I pretty much always, every show I went to, I sat in almost the same place and there were four rows between the balcony and the soundboard and soundboard was upstairs. So I look at Buddy and I said, I probably sat next to you at a few shows at Fillmore East. 
with your reel to reel, and he he just drops everything, <laughs> and he says, "Oh my God, nobody's said anything like that to me in twenty years." That's incredible. And I, so I said, "Is it true?" And he says, "Well, I don't know what you hear, but probably." And I said, "So you have all those tapes?" And he says, "I can't tell you where they are." And I'm like, "Tell me." And he says, they're in my mom's garage <laughs> oh in New God. Jersey. And I'm like, buddy, buddy, you've got to deal with us. And he says, I know, I know. But you just got this gold mine. So he gets up from his chair and we're standing talking and there's a gate behind him, backstage behind the gate. And he comes over to me and he puts his arm around him and he says, come on, let's talk. And Leslie walks up. She'd been elsewhere with friends. So she walks up and sees that we're about to head backstage. And she looks at Buddy and she says, I have to tell you, I only married him because he turned me on to you. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he says, there's a song there. <laughs> That's lyrical. That sounds like a song. That's incredible. So we hung out for a while. But yeah, there again, another one of those insanely sweet rock stars. Yeah. You know? Doesn't spoil them all. No, so, no, it doesn't. And it, yeah, I, I find yeah. that often, you know, more often than not, you run into these guys and, and, um, you know, they can, they might have a little asshole in them, but, uh, you could, you've heard your stories about Steve Earl, but I, I've always ever yeah. had incredible reactions with him. Hey, um, I want to get into something else. Let's talk, uh, let's talk a little art. You want to? I was, I was just going to say, I thought this show was about art. Hey, I have, I have a little gripe. Yeah. I listened to Sarah. That's a hard act to follow. <laughs> she was, I don't know her. Yeah. Of course I know of her and I love her work and I know she's an awesome person. But Dude. That was for sure one of my favorite episodes. That was definitely she's, one of my favorites to record too. She was super forthcoming and um, I feel like Douglas and I kind of hit our stride with her too. It was yeah, everything kind of worked. She was she was incredible. Yeah. I loved that talk. She's she's great. Yeah, yeah. I could spend the whole half hour hour talking to just tangents from what she talked about. Yeah, so incredible, incredible stories. Was there anything that um that jumped out at you that you? I mean, this is the the episode after her, so if there's anything you I, want to talk I about, know. Douglas and I typically do too. So, well, the whole thing with what's happening with shows, you know. A lot of us are getting nervous. Same exact thing happened to me that happened to you. My last two shows were in September. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess I can name names. So St. Louis, yep. which was good, but but down mm -hmm. in the past couple of years. And then I did Rittenhouse the weekend after. And that was my 13th Rittenhouse. And I've always done really well at Rittenhouse. Yeah. And it was horrible. That's such so, a yeah. Like, it's scary. Am I that's how I ended my year, and I'm like, "Ooh, what's what's happening?" And I've done that show so many times. I have not a following, but I have clients that at least they live right there. They can walk to the show. The density there is, you know, enormous. Right. Population density, and they always come and say hi. At least I don't when they when I see a client walk in, I don't expect them to buy anything. Sure. But it's always sweet when they come and say hi. Yeah. Not one. Not one. Not one. What do you think that yeah. is? I mean, I, I I always feel like we're the canary in the coal mine for the economy, but oh, 
Um, like I always do really well in Houston. It's an incredible market. And I went to buy you and it's always like, look, it's, it's a hard show and it, it takes a a bad rap because it's so hard to do. But you know, the, the thing about it is it's always worth it. You know, it's like, well, I'm going to jump through these hoops and I'm going to do this and at least it's going to be worth it. And, um, you know, this time around, it just wasn't worth it. There was just, there wasn't anything happening. I didn't see any of my old customers. I even emailed, you know, old clients and nothing back. Like it was, it was just kind of weird. Things just feel, feel a little off. Yes, they do. But that's odd that have people stopped coming to shows, but we're sort of in that higher end market. We are. You know? Yeah. And I don't, I think for the most part, does it really matter to most of our clients what the economy is doing? But I would think not. I mean, that's why that's why we work larger, right? I mean, we're aiming yeah, towards that exactly. that top, you know, ten percent. So, right. Yet again, I haven't heard anybody come up with an answer. No, so. not that's the first time I've heard that kind of thing about people just not showing up and not going out anymore. But I don't know it. It's there's a lot going on politically that's pretty terrifying, and yes. and uh, the world no is on fire. It's yeah. just, um, man. Yeah, I don't even. I'm not. I'm not even going to go there with you. Yeah, I know. So super scary. It is super scary. So I, I we don't have to dwell on this. But at the same time, I kind of want to talk um, a little bit. Your history kind of got us up to about eighty two. <laughs> and then we and then we kind of stopped but let's let's talk a little bit about artwork and where you get your inspiration and and how you got started. I don't know that there are any other concrete artists out there on the circuit. You jury under mixed media, I'm sure, but it's mostly mostly poured concrete, correct? It is glass. So, yeah. All, almost almost all my work, 90% of it has glass in it. And I used to be a glass artist. So here I'll give you a, get your opinion on this. And it's a rock and roll thing. And it's a rock and roll persona that maybe got me to where I am yeah. today. And I t- I've told this story many times. And some people scoff and other <laughs> people say, yeah, you're right. So I'm, I'm living in Reno. I'm going to school. I'm going to college after like a, I took five years. I didn't go back to college for five years after I graduated from high school. So I'm in Reno and I want to be an architect. And that's what I wanted to do in high school. And because I had to move to New York for my senior year, that just got jerked out from underneath me. And I was discouraged. So I'm in Reno and I'm going to school full time and I'm working full time. And uh, I'm interning for an architect's office. And my brother-in-law who i was around a lot starts dabbling in stained glass okay i said you have to teach me how to do that and he goes no nobody taught me you just look over my shoulder so i was a big fan big fan of frank lloyd wright as well as tiffany yeah and so i made a little window very frank lloyd wright style and then i made a larger window in tiffany's style so i have a really good friend by the name of Michael Hawley, who was from Austin, and he was a musician. Okay. And he left Austin and went to L.A. and ends up living in Mama Cass's house. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, up so there in the, in the hills, like in, Laurel Canyon kind of? Yeah, yeah, in, Topanga, in wow. Topanga Canyon. Gotcha. So she, this is, a great, this is a great long story. I should write a short story about this tale. Yeah, please. But 
she she tells him you'll never make it as a musician. <laughs> she says you're a really sweet. He was insanely handsome. She says you're a really sweet, good-looking guy, but you'll never make it as a musician. He just didn't have the chops. Okay. And she says, "What what are we going to do with you?" And she and she thinks about it and she says, "Books." She says, "Everybody reads books." You need to do something with books. And he says, well, I can't write. And she says, no, you don't need to do that. She says, go somewhere and open a bookstore. So he moves to Reno and he opens a bookstore because Mama Cass. Because <laughs> she told you know, him to. I, I'm pretty sure everybody knows who she is. Yeah, oh, I yeah. don't think she needs an next. No, not at all. So, so, yeah, she told him to. So he marries this woman named Helen and they have this bookstore across the street from the University of Nevada in Reno. And... We get to be good friends. He's probably four or five years older than me. And we start hanging out. And then he moves his bookstore into a new mall in Reno. And he says, you're going to make the sign for my new bookstore out of stained glass. I'm like, dude, you're high. <laughs> One, I don't have time. I'm doing all these things. He said, I don't have time for that. And I don't have those skills. And he says, no, you're going to do it. So I do it. Two months later, I had quit school and I quit my job. Because I was so busy with stained glass. Stained glass. So that's incredible. I made it. I made it. I made it really quick. I made his window really quickly. The mall wasn't even open yet. The window goes up in his storefront over his front door, and in a couple of days, I had three more orders wow. for store signs. Yeah. And then one of one of the stores was a bath supply store, and it was her. The woman's husband was building. He was a contractor, and he was building houses in Reno. And he gave me an order for 40 transom windows. No kidding. For, for these houses he was building. Yeah. So I was like. That's insane, Thank Rob. you. Thank you, Zafa. Thanks, Frank. Yeah. I was an overnight sensation. It's Mama, um, Mama Cass. She she, she yeah, directed Mama the Cass. whole thing. She's so, pulling the strings. Exactly. So some people say that's crazy. She had nothing to do with it, but I really do think she did. She did. So I've always that was 1976. I have always I've done a bunch of things since, but I have always always no matter where I lived or what I was doing, I had a glass studio in my house somewhere that's in incredible. the garage. And, and I, more of like you you've gone from stained glass to more say fused glass and poured glass. No, never never hot. Always cold okay. glass. How so, interesting. So I was I was living in Hawaii, and I was doing quite a bit of glass because I was working with a guy who had a store, a stained glass shop, and he did a lot of commission work, and he would throw me a lot of stuff. But I had a full-time job as well, and I was doing that on the side and hanging out with a bunch of artists. And all the successful artists made work for outside. Everybody that lives in Hawaii... Nobody ever goes in their house. Right. There's no reason to go in your house. It's all outdoor living space. Make dinner, not even that. It's all outdoor living. So I was really envious of all these people making a lot of money with outdoor art. And I thought, I'll never get my glass outside. So I on vacation, I take six days, and I'm in Santa Fe. Yeah. And I see this really crude stepping stone that somebody had taken a broken plate and pressed it into wet concrete and made a horrible looking stepping stone. <laughs> and this light bulb went off over my head and I thought I can do that with glass. So the next thing I know I'm living in Santa Fe 
that's a long story how I got there, but yeah. um, focusing on casting glass in concrete. And I just took a year. I had a little bit of money and I took a year because it's easier said than done. There's freeze thaw things. And I wanted, I wanted to make outdoor furniture. And uh, so I did. And I started doing that. In Next Santa thing Fe. I know, That's where you started that. In Santa Fe. So I, I lived there for a year. I lived outside of town. My very first art show was in a little town in the Sierra called Gregel in 1976. When I a lot happening in glass. 76. <laughs> 76 was, yeah, yeah, as good as the year in El Paso. And that art show is still happening. Is it really? It's still there. And my brother-in-law had a little kiosk in this town where he sold his art. But that was my last art show until I moved to Santa Fe, which would have been 98. Okay. And I started doing the Tsuki Flea Market. Wow. Which talk to some of the old timers about that. Oh yeah. We were just um, over in Tasuki. They've got, you know, little little people popping up and around that little cafe. Yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Cool yeah. little town. But the Tasuki flea market was like the Star Wars bar. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. I think it was February to November, right on that plateau, which is probably all houses now, right past the opera house. Yeah. Or the opera. It is. That's out out near Jennifer Cavins, actually. Yeah, exactly. She looks down on she it. She does. That's a sweet house. That's a, that's a two very sweet oh, people right the there. The sweetest, right? Just incredible people. Just incredible humans. They are and they're and they're home as well. Yeah. Yeah, they amazing. are. They're exceptional. So sweet. I mean, just for cowboy boots alone. Oh. There's a whole show right there. Right? Yeah. That that is kinda a hard whole to, show. Kinda hard to do. Cowboy boots on a radio show. <laughs> we'll have to do like a YouTube, <laughs> do a tour of Jennifer's. Oh my gosh! So that's it. I never looked back. Yeah, that's the start. I've, I've been supporting myself since then. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible, Rob. I appreciate your story um, so much. I, I do want to hear one more though. Uh, if you know Rob, then you, chances are you've met his lovely wife Leslie. And if it's okay with her, I'd love to hear the story. Uh, how you guys met, because I've heard this a couple of times, and it's it's just such a special, <laughs> it's a good one. I'm living in Santa Fe, start doing some collaborative work with an iron worker in Pittsburgh. Mm. Our combined work turns out so well that I moved to Pittsburgh to work with this guy. Yeah. When I find out, I'm not a big fan of Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's a tough and one. And I miss, I miss the West. So I'm married at the time not to Leslie, and moved to this tiny little community in Northern California, outside of Nevada City. Yeah. And I buy this small house with a shop, and there's there's maybe 30 people live in this little valley. And my ex-wife, who had lived in New Mexico for a very long time, missed New Mexico and said, let's go back. And I said, no, I can't go back there. And I love it. I was finally home yeah. after this whole lifetime of running around. I knew I was where I wanted to stay. So we had a very amicable breakup. I'm there by myself. And I was living there for two years. Yeah. Nice nice work on that one. That's a tough one to pull well, <laughs> So yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. And I was really, I was busy doing glass. So there's one house next door. No other homes around. That was fourth generation, and he dies 
Hmm. And the woman didn't want to stay there alone. They were older. And she puts it on the market. And I had been gone all day the day she put it on the market. And I come home. And she comes running across the yard. And she says, Rob, Rob, a woman looked at the house today. And for your sake, I hope she buys it. (laughs) I'm like, what? So that woman keeps coming back to look at the house. And I never happened to be around. And then finally, she buys the house the day she moves in. And there's all this mystery. I have, I know nothing about her. I don't know if she's married or anything. And I look across the yard, and there's three guys helping her with the rent a truck. And I'm like, oh, she's pretty cute. <laughs> she's, she's really cute. Really cute. So she's literally a girl next door story. She was single. I was single. And uh, she bought the property because it had a huge shop, and she was a furniture maker. Oh, wow. And she moved there from San Francisco, and she had just put herself through wood school, the College of the Redwoods, which is one of the best wood yeah. schools, furniture-making schools That's in the country. That's an incredible school. And wanted to settle down and make furniture, and six months later, we're making furniture together, and a couple of years after that, we got married. Wow. So that was... That was in uh, 22, so 21 years ago. 20, that's amazing. I kind of, for some reason, I, I didn't know that you'd been together that long. It's That's uh, yeah. it's incredible. And then <laughs> somehow, you guys ended up in Des Moines after being like yeah. the California yeah. kid. Like That's that's another episode. <laughs> we, got, we had no intention of moving here. We got tired of the rural. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were a half hour from our little town. And it was a big property and an older property, and it was constant maintenance, constant driving all the time. And I was there for almost 20 years. Right. She was there 17, 18, and it just got old. took forever just to get out of there. So we sold the house, and when it's on the market, I look at her, and I said, you know what's going to happen is we're going to be sitting in the sprinter in front of the house with a check in our hand. and that's exactly what happened. With no place to go. So we were driving go. around the country. We had no place to go. And we stopped to visit a host family that we had met years earlier from the Des Moines Art Festival and stayed with them. And they sort of set us up and had a realtor come grab us and start showing us real estate. And it was February Ooh. and it was in the 50s. Yeah, no. Oh, my God. It's in the 50s. That's unheard like, of. Whoa, this isn't bad. And then the <laughs> prices alone... We're crazy. So we said, well, we'll give it two years. And that was almost, that was six, six and a half years ago. I was going to say six years. Yeah. I remember when you guys moved there yeah. and we were all going, what the fuck are they thinking? Right. <laughs> with with no offense to Stephen King. I but know. It's it, this, yeah. But it's right. No. <laughs> Economically, it's fantastic because I can be almost anywhere and be home in two days. Yes. As opposed to driving to Rittenhouse from Northern California and spending 10 days behind the wheel. Yeah. So, Man, this has been an amazing talk. You're right. We really did fill the show with music, I think. I think we did. Which I wasn't expecting, but it's good. <laughs> I hope so. I, I think it is. It's what I care about. <laughs> I know. I don't know. You know, it's what I wanted to hear. Well, I want to I want to turn it around and interview you, Mr. East Coast Radio personality. I can imagine the stories that you have. So I'm going to hook up with Douglas and all right. coerce him into making that happen. Sounds good. Interview Will. I'm game anytime. See all the people you've talked to. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anytime. Okay. 
Uh, Rob, I, I love you, buddy. Uh, please give my love to Leslie and tell her I'm thinking about her. I hope she's doing well. And I love you, too. Thank you for this honor. Oh, man, I've been wanting to have you on forever. Thanks for finally saying yes. Except you'll curse me because it's going to take you three weeks to edit this. So. <laughs> You'd be surprised what Douglas can do. He's, he's a master at this All right. point. All right, brother. Talk All to you right. soon. All right. See you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye. You know, Will, I found it really interesting in this talk. You spent, you know, a small portion of the conversation with Rob talking about, you know, his artistic life. But you can <laughs> I, I barely even talked about it. I know. I barely even asked him anything. I feel bad. But you but what you can see from those early days being like this nomad, this gypsy, how that kind of laid the groundwork for the life he has now, don't you think? I mean I do. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it almost goes without saying, right? Yeah. There totally. are very few art show artists, I feel like, that do the middle of the country to the east coast art shows mm. that are willing to hop into the truck and the van and, and drive two days before you even get to God, the main highway to get to the show you're going to. Totally. Um, poor Anthony Hansen, uh, talking to him about that and, and how long he spends on the road. But yeah, what a what a road warrior. Totally. And then to just to take four weeks to himself, him and his wife's self to just hit the yeah. road and just go do it and and see sights and and just live. So I really, really enjoyed that. That was really cool. Yeah. So, you know, this show was kind of uh, kind of focused on Rob's travels, early days, music history, things like that, that I wanted to nerd out with him. But I did want to give a shout out to his amazing wife, Leslie Keenan. We kind of touched on her and her work, but she's uh, just as a uh, as accomplished an artist as as Rob is for sure. And and maybe more so. Mm. Uh, we're both lucky to be married to a, to amazing, powerful, uh, artistic women. So, so cheers to you, Leslie. And, and, I uh, can't wait to see you out there on the road. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, Hey, so you mentioned earlier about, you know, having to spend two and a half, whatever plus days just to get to your destination. I am actually about to do that very thing, heading out your way to, to get to Palm <laughs> Desert. Yeah. How are you? Uh, what's the route? What did you figure out? The I did. The, uh... So here's the here's the thing. Two years ago, came back from La Quinta in November and I mm. vowed I am never driving through the Eisenhower Pass in November again, driving into the snow and the ice going up the mountains. Right. You know, just yeah, west what? of Denver, just west of Denver. Oh. Right. That, that takes you down through uh, into Utah. Is yes, right? it was the most, it was awful. It was scary. Nothing showed up on, anyway, long story short, I am I am going to do the smart guy route this time, and I'm going to come okay. through Albuquerque. So I'm going to do the southerly hey. route and pass by Santa Fe and uh, head, head on over to La Quinta, California, Palm Desert. You guys give yourselves plenty of time. Um, I, I tend to to stretch it pretty, pretty tight. It's like, well, I you know, driving two hours on the day of or six hours on the day of setup or whatever. Well, if you have your act together, you can hook a, a tow rope up with that uh, piece of crap truck you got there <laughs> and we will tow you all the way to La Quinta, California. <laughs> you have to put me in the trailer, though. I don't think you got a third seat. Just wrap me in bubble wrap and put me in the back. Oh, you could fly in and style. You could. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. I like it. Yeah, no. be safe with that trip, Douglas. It's not. I mean, the weather can creep up on you yeah. even in New Mexico, coming through the desert really quickly, and it can get kind of nasty. So just uh, look ahead and um, give myself I some still time. Wish there was a yeah freaking app like that combined the weather with the driving. Yeah, there's still not like a perfect app. Oh. Well. 
Um, there you go. Get to work on that one. <laughs> yeah, all my free time. Uh, can you make me an app, please? I'm an idea man. Yes, we've got that big trip ahead of us. And I'm going to try this week to get my recording with our next guest, which is James and Carrie Pierce from Peoria, Illinois. Nice! So that I can Heck get yeah. that logged so I could be uh, editing away on my trip. So hopefully when we get back, we'll oh, be able man. to go uninterrupted and still have another episode the following week. I'm excited to hear that. And uh, another one that I'm jealous I don't get to be a, a, a fly on the wall on the, on that one. Uh, tell those guys hello. I'm a big fan of both of their work uh, and just incredible artists and, and people as well. So, yeah. Awesome. Have a good time talking to those guys. All right. Well, have a good trip and we'll see you in California. Safe travels. Look forward to seeing you and Renee. Take care. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Independent Artists. The website is naiaartists.org. Also sponsored by Zapplication. That's zapplication.org. And while you're at it, find us on social media and engage in these conversations. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to be notified when we release new episodes. Oh, and if you like the show, we'd love it if you would give us your five-star rating and offer up your most creative review on your podcast streaming service. See you next time.